Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. All right. Welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Daniel Foch. I am a real estate broker and investor. I'm joined here by two other people. Number one, you know, you love him. His name's Nick Hill. And number two, one of our most requested guests, backed by popular demand. Who do we have here? The gold mine, Patrick Cassette. <laughs> that sounds like your wrestling name. Yeah. <laughs> Patrick, the gold mine cassette, the wrestling accountant, maybe. If there you go, wrestle your taxes. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. There you go. Before we get into this one, everybody, go check out the other episode we did with Patrick, episode 39, buying real estate in a corporation versus your personal name. It's actually one of our best performing episodes. That's awesome. Today, we're getting into the two certainties of life. The what's the old saying, Nick? Death and taxes. That was actually a saying from Benjamin Franklin. And was it? Reads, it? I thought yeah. it was the tax man cometh. Weren't we talking about this recently? Was it? Because I looked it up right before this and I was like, this is how we have to introduce it. Now I feel like an idiot because I might have looked up the wrong he thing. Done but apparently, both, it's, right? apparently, it's from Benjamin Franklin. Our new constitution is now established. Everything seems to promise it will be durable. But in this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. I love it. I love it. Ben Franklin, relatively well-known guy. Yeah, you've probably seen him on some money you've held at some point. I think he's the $100 bill, isn't he? Ooh, so maybe you haven't because those are scarce these days. Anyways, before we get into it, Patrick, you wanted to claim something back from you. Something Dan said in another episode upset you and you wanted to call him out on the show in front of everybody? Yeah, we're going to have to go back and do some fact-checking here, so... A little garment that you said you're procuring at, you know, local establishment called the GT Boutique. So I'm from up in Northern Ontario and, you know, we bought the same jackets and we were calling them Folliette dinner jackets. So we're just going to have to go back and see who wore it first, I guess. I feel like perhaps every town full of beauties in rural Canada has a probably a claim to fame on the, the dinner jacket at this point. For anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about, yeah. these, <laughs> I was going to maybe clarify <laughs> a little bit here. They're like these plaid, like a flannel plaid, or where, flannel, we, are, where, yeah. where from we call them flannel, actually. It's a luxury yeah, item. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, it's a flannel outer shell with like almost like what do they call those things that everybody's sherpa interior a little bit and it's got a hood on it and they're like they're good they're like the best most resilient thing a human being can possibly wear very versatile if you're going out for dinner or if you got to jump in or out of an excavator or you're doing some work on a property great great clothing item they've been reinvented as the shacket actually but anyway (laughs) i I personally think national debate debate. if you're a listener in your town as a dinner jacket let us know because we'll try and maybe we'll send them out as merch for every town in canada that yeah, would actually be hilarious. Go. Branded to each individual town because we all know everyone individually invented it. Anyways, dinner jackets aside, this is not a fashion podcast, is it, fellas? This is a real estate podcast. And today we are doing a tax deep dive. So, Patrick, these are questions that we had for you. These are questions that listeners have been reaching out to us and to you. I think after the first episode, you had several podcast listeners reach out to you. So these are probably, I think we've got seven here. These are the seven most asked questions and we're going to go through them. Sound good? Sounds good. Ready to fire it up, boys? Okay. So 
In the other episode, episode 39, we touched broadly on the tax topic. What are some additional points now for our listeners to consider, especially since, you know, tax season is upon us and, you know, there's likely to be a lot of good buying opportunity in the next little while. So this is a great time to hear this episode. My favorite time of the year. Yeah. So in the last episode, I'm surprised you even have time to talk right now, given it's the beginning of tax season. T4 just came out probably, right? That's right. Just starting all well, reconciliation and the T4 comes out. So we won't call we you for another episode. Bit of quiet time. Yeah, we won't call you for another <laughs> episode in April. <laughs> well, we'll talk about the deadlines, actually. That's a topic we'll talk about because there's a misconception there. So we can run through that. But in the last episode, it was a high level topics. So, you know, we briefly described, as you mentioned, generating business income as an individual via sole proprietorship or through a corporation. So today I'll take a deeper dive on the corporate income tax side of things, as there's a bit more complexity, particularly when dealing with real estate income. So there's a few important concepts to consider that we'll run through. So first of all is the type of corporation. So if it's a Canadian controlled private corp versus an other private corp versus a public corp, which is not really related to what we'll talk about today, the concept of related corporations, as this will impact your tax deductions, the type of income. So if it's considered active versus passive, the concept of the small business deduction, which we touched slightly in the last episode, which is used to reduce that corporate income tax rate, as well as I just mentioned the filing deadlines. So the concept of the payment due date versus the return date. So there's various types of corporations in the Income Tax Act. So the first one is the Canadian Controlled Private Corporation. So in order to classify as a CCPC, because I'm going to mention it a couple of times, so I'll call it the CCPC, it must meet all of the following conditions. So first of all, it's got to be a private corporation. So it's got to be owned by an individual. The corporation has to be a resident of Canada and it has to be incorporated after June 18th, 1971. So for most new corps we're doing today, it's not a problem. It cannot be controlled directly or indirectly by one or more non-residents. So the actual shareholders of the corp need to actually be Canadian citizens. The corporation cannot be controlled directly or indirectly by a public corp. And no class of their shares can be listed on a designated stock exchange, so TSX and OISC, et cetera. So if you don't meet all of the above, you would actually be considered an OPC, so other private corporation, not to be confused with OPM, in that case, which would change your kind of tax treatment slightly. So from the concept of a related corporation, if an individual owns more than one corporation, they are considered related for tax purposes. So for example, if you got a hold co with a number of operating co's below it, or just various businesses across various corporations, if the owner structure is similar, the entity is considered related. And this is important because it'll impact your tax treatment and the access to some tax deductions, which we'll talk about. So the type of income that that corporation earns is also important. So real estate investing is a broad topic. So it's important that we consider the nature of the income earned. So CRA views income in a corp as either active business income, so ABI, or passive income. So in order to avoid taxpayers from transferring income, generating assets into a corporation for the purposes of avoiding taxes, the CRA will assess the amount of effort that's required in order to generate that taxable income. So the more passive the income, so i.e. less work involved in generating that income, the less access you have to deductions and the more tax you'll pay. So we'll- Patrick, sorry to stop you there. Active versus passive. Can we just elaborate on that just a little bit. I know the word passive gets thrown around a lot in real estate investing. 
Would passive income, like, would that be rental income? Yes. So I'll touch on that in just two seconds. Okay, wonderful. I'll split and kind of tie this back to how it fits into the real estate side. So, you know, from the corp side of things, while you may not have access to all tax deductions under the passive side, there's still some tax benefits, especially if you earn more than 250K personally. And we talked about some of those other benefits of running your business through a corp in the last episode, which was episode number 39, I believe. So what does all this mean for real estate investors? So to your point, Nick, so generally income derived from flipping, wholesaling, or a service-based business related to real estate would be considered active business income. So that would fall on the active side of things. Whereas income generated from rental properties with a few exceptions, which I'll I'll touch on, would be considered passive income. So from CRA's perspective, rental income, they classify as what's called specified investment business. So SIB. So I'll, I'll refer to that acronym a few times. We might need a dictionary for all these. (laughs) But in order for rental income to be considered active business income, there's two scenarios. So the first one is the corp employs more than five full-time employees throughout the year or an associated corporation. So again, bringing it back to that related corporation structure provides services to the corporation while carrying out active business. And that corporation would have to engage more than five full-time employees to perform those services. So for example, that Holdco that owns land and building, that's renting that to a related construction company that has more than five employees, then at that point in time, it'd be considered active. And same thing for larger portfolios where you're hiring a property manager. And this is actual employees within the corps. You're hiring a property manager. You're hiring a deal manager. You're hiring an accountant, bookkeeper, et cetera. So once you hit the stage where you have full-time employees and you're actively working on a day-to-day basis to generate that income, then it'd be classified as active versus passive. But for most of the listeners, they'd fall into that passive income stream and considered as a specified investment business. Now, an important consideration here, which is typically a point that I hear quite often in a lot of questions that I'm hearing is the short-term rentals. So unless Mm -hmm. you are providing additional services to guests, so such as meals or laundry or running an Airbnb, CRA views income from short-term rentals as a specified investment business. So it is considered passive. Interesting. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So I'll explain why that too, because I know a lot of people, actually, I was just on a call with a guy from Tobermore and he was, he owns some Airbnbs up there and he's worried he's actually trying to get into more long-term and and commercial stuff because all the licenses and the municipalities are changing, right? They're tightening up the grip. On what an STR is. That's right. Yeah, I think it is an interesting discussion, right? Because like these are all just policies. So you're like innovation. Like you can look at Uber, but then you can look at Airbnb being in you know the the accessible innovation in the real estate space. It happens. It happened. You know what? Five, seven years ago. It takes a while for adoption to roll out, and as adoption starts to peak, the regulatory environment's just starting to catch up and say, "Well, we need to get some money out of this, or you know, whatever it is." And so they start layering in regulation on the tax side. So the government's saying, "How do we squeeze as much income out of this?" But then also the municipalities are saying, "How do we create a balance here for this property type, or how do we?" license this, control it a little bit. And so the policy environment is kind of responsive or reactionary to the world of innovation. I just find that interesting when you're thinking about further iterations of whatever the next Airbnb or major innovation is in the real estate space, you probably really only have a good five-year run at it before the government comes in and starts to mess it up because they tend to be pretty good at that. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, 
Yeah, I completely agree, Dan. But, you know, hot topic right now. Sorry, Patrick. So it's looked at as what type of income? So specified investment business. So it's actually passive. And I'll explain why this is important. It's actually a perfect segue in the next topic, which is the small business deduction. So if you remember from the last episode, we talked about corporate tax rates being lower than personal tax rates. So one of the deductions that helps reduce this rate is called the small business deduction. And this is available to CCPCs only, so Canadian controlled private corporations. And effectively, what it does is it reduces the corporate income tax that a corporation would otherwise have to pay in a tax year on active business income carried on in Canada. So in this case here, any of the income earned underneath the specified investment business, so that rental income would be excluded and you wouldn't have access to that tax deduction. Now, it doesn't mean that there's you know no other benefits from running this through a corp, but you wouldn't have access to that small business deduction. So you'd be paying a little bit higher of a tax rate than you would as an active business income. Now, the application of the small business deduction, so SBD, differs federally versus provincially. So talk to your local accountant. And it's based on a business limit that is set by regulators. So it's set federally. So right now, the business limit is 500,000. So on the first 500,000 of active business taxable income that's generated, you can apply the small business deduction. Provinces have the option of choosing their own, while most will follow the federal government with the 500, right? So when you're filing your income taxes, you're filing both federally and provincially, and the application of the SBD is similar. Now, if you're incorporating year, so you don't have a full year, that small business deduction is prorated for the number of days in the year, and it is shared amongst CCPCs. So again, if you're running a corporation with active business income and you're making income across multiple entities, that 500000 limit is shared amongst those related entities. So again, coming back to that prior example of the hold co with the ops co's, that limit would be shared across the board. So when you're filing the tax return, we actually have to go through and allocate that small business deduction across the board to generate the best tax benefit for the client. Now, something else to consider is the taxable capital, which I'll explain in just a second of the corporation. So if your taxable capital is above 15 million, you're no longer considered a small business and you cannot claim the small business deduction. And if you're between that 10 million to 15 million range, it's reduced on a straight line basis. And taxable capital, it's a fairly lengthy calculation we have to go through and your accountant will do that at the end of the year. But it effectively means the retained earnings in the business. So whatever earnings you have left in the business, if that's if you're getting close to that $10 million range, you're kind of approaching, you know, no longer be classified as a small business. And you can you know, slowly see that deduction reduce over time as that taxable capital grows. Now, finally, the filing deadlines, which we kind of opened with a little bit, but it is a common misconception that I see for a lot of new incorporators. So it's important to consider the difference between your payment due date and your filing deadline. So generally, a corporate tax return is due within six months following the corporation's year end, and you set that during your incorporation process. So for example, if a corporation's year end is December 31st, the tax return would be due June 30th. However, depending on the size and the volume of the corporation, you could be required to make monthly or quarterly tax installments, which are due on the last day of every remitting month. And that's determined when you file your tax return. So at minimum, as an annual filer, so let's say you don't have to file monthly, you don't have to file quarterly, you are required to pay your income tax payable within three months 
of year end. If you're a Canadian controlled private corporation, so CCPC, claiming the small business deduction or two months for everybody else. So it's important that, you know, don't wait until the month of May to find an accountant to do your year end for your corp because you've already missed your, <laughs> your tax, your payment deadline, right? So that would be due for a CCPC. It'd be due by kind of that March, April timeframe. And it's important that you pay the tax. So sit with your accountant, generate an estimate, pay the tax, and then you have a bit of time to file your return. But they're two very unrelated things. And it's important that you do make sure you're filing within the established deadlines because obviously CRA can impose some penalties or late payment uh, for uh, any late filings or payments. Yeah, we want to avoid most contact with them. Yes, exactly. <laughs> We're already paying enough taxes, so let's not give them more in late filings and penalties and interest. Now, exactly. and the other one that's important is returns are required regardless of having actual taxable income, do or not. So even if you're creating a corporation, let's say I'm going to start a business in a year from now when you're not actively transacting, but you registered with CRA and got a business number, you have to file a nil return. You have to actually trigger that in their system. So it's just important that you do run through that. Yeah. Funny anecdote. I actually had a nil return at one point that held up getting a tax return. This is years and years ago, but it was so annoying having to go in. And it was a business, a corporation I started with. By the time we started the corporation, we had dissolved the business and it just didn't line up anyways. Make sure to go get that done, folks. And you know what? A good accountant can help you do all this because I, every time you come on, Patrick, I'm, I'm learning so much and we're just getting to the second question here. <laughs> I'm an expert no return filer myself, actually. I'm pretty good at creating <laughs> corporations that are absolutely useless myself. But yeah, there's a couple of really great points there. And I think one of the things that's maybe not discussed enough in this space is the extra layer of tax and that GST or HST that you know we hear a lot about as professionals, obviously, because we're collecting it on the income side. You also hear about it a lot on you know new houses or extremely common type of asset class and investment category that Canadian real estate investors are getting into. And it typically applies unless you're kind of doing the builder flow through, which I don't know if it's on the list of things that you're going to talk about. But you know, that where builders are often charging GST on, on new homes. And then it's mm -hmm. also applicable to commercial rents as well. What other implications are there that our listeners should be aware of where HST and GST come in as a component in real estate investing? Yeah. So the nature of the business and the place of supply are key to the application of when that kicks in. And this applies both to corporations and sole proprietors. So if you're running a business as a sole proprietor, meaning you didn't incorporate, but you're generating business income as an individual, if you meet the criteria, you should be registering and charging, which I'll touch on. So in order to register, you have to register for GST and HST if both so both of the following apply. So number one, you make what's considered taxable sales, which I'll explain in a minute, leases or other supplies in Canada, and you're not considered a small supplier, which I'll explain that one too. So taxable sales means a supply of product or services that is made in the course of commercial activity and is subject to GST and HST, including zero rated supplies. And there's a long list on the Sierra website of what qualifies, what doesn't qualify. And I'll bring this back to real estate investing in, in just a second. But in other words, effectively means if you're selling a product or service in Canada, you should be charging GST and HST if you meet the two criteria. So you're making the sale and you're not considered a small supplier. Now, the criteria for the small supplier just means that you have taxable sales worldwide 
of less than 30,000 in a single calendar quarter and over the last four consecutive quarters. So if you're billing more than on average 10,000 a month, you should probably take a look and register if you're selling taxable supply. Now, registration excludes what's called exempt supply, which means certain aspects or certain transactions do not trigger a GST or HST event. I'll focus just on the real estate items, but there's a fairly long list. You know, the sale of a principal place of residence, so not a builder. So as Daniel mentioned, when you're selling new construction, or even if you're selling, you know, a property, if you're in the flipping business and you're selling a property that you've materially altered, GST applies. And at that point in time, you should be charging GST and there's rebates for new buyers, but that's a topic for another episode. But from an individual perspective, if you're selling your principal place of residence, that would be considered exempt and you don't have to worry about GST or HST there. Long-term rentals of residential accommodations would be considered exempt. But as Dan said, on the commercial side of things, because it's commercial activity, GST and HST would apply. And if you are providing taxable supply, you must charge GST and HST, and you can claim input tax credits. And what input tax credits are, is effectively the HST and GST you are paying on the inputs to create whatever product or service you're selling. So you have the ability to recoup that HST and GST that you paid, which is passed on to your customer by you charging that HST to your customer. Now, if you're providing exempt supply, for example, rentals, so long-term rentals, you do not charge mm-hmm. HST or GST, and you cannot claim those ITCs. So what does all mean for real estate investors? Well, generally, if you're in the business of flipping, with some exceptions that I can touch on in a different episode, wholesaling or a service-based business in the real estate field, this would be considered taxable supply, and you should be charging GST and HST and claiming the ITCs if you're not a small supplier. So again, if you're generating more than 30000 a quarter in revenue, you probably want to look at that. Now, long-term rentals are considered exempt. So you don't charge GST and HST, and therefore you can't claim the ITCs. But an important one, again, bringing it back to the short-term rental side of things. So from a CRA perspective, any rentals less than 30 days are considered taxable supply, and you should be charging GST and HST, and you should be claiming the ITCs. So Pay attention to your volumes, right? If you've got multiple properties and you're generating more than that 30,000 and a quarter, you should be charging HST. Now, I think back in earlier 2022, Airbnb did change kind of their structure of their website a little bit, and they are adding that as part of the fee, but just make sure you are looking at that. But even though you are charging it, if you're hitting that 30K per quarter, you need to register for a number, file that with CRA, claim your ITCs, et cetera. Now, the other important consideration here is if you have a mix of types of supply, you need to apply the rules accordingly. So a good example is I know a lot of real estate investors have both a mix of long-term rentals. So on the personal side of things, not commercial, but a mix of long-term rentals, so more than 30 days and short-term rentals, you would have to treat the transactions differently. So you got to look at it almost like a siloed approach. So on all of your taxable supply sales, you need to make sure you're charging that GST and HST and claiming the ITCs. And on the exempt side of the transactions, you need to make sure that you're not charging the GST and HST and not claiming the ITCs. So your accountant will really focus on that during year end when creating your returns. And your experience, would most investors know what you're saying right now? Like, I don't think that one of the things that I've noticed in the industry is that the base knowledge of real estate investors is a lot lower than where it needs to be. And like, I think I've made this statement on Twitter a couple of times and throughout social media that, you know, I think that probably rental income, other than tips, maybe rental income is probably the most underreported income 
in, in the country. And now it sounds like you're adding a new layer to it where there's this other type of rental income that isn't even, I think a lot of people don't even really understand that that's how it's supposed to be interpreted. So, I mean, I just said out, out of curiosity, like people who come to you, do most people know what you just mentioned? No, it's a common misconception <laughs> that I see. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really unfortunate because then it's a scramble that year end, right? You right. know, if you don't have the receipts yeah. to support it, it's an issue. Some of these things you wish they, they taught in school and then kind of highlighted and there'd probably be more, a lot more compliance in there, but no, it's, you know, many times at year end, it's, it's a shock to many investors. Yeah. I, th- I mean, if they taught it in school, what, what would we talk about? Right. So. That's true. That's a good point. That's a good point. I mean, that's probably why there's so much room for like gurus and stuff like that in this industry, right? Like, I don't know if that's necessarily what they're teaching, but there is such an educational gap between like, you know, mm-hmm. like, I think there's just like the guruness of the Western world is like the fact that financial literacy is so low. And like somebody that's could just right. say that they have a single secret and people are willing to pay for it. It's kind of messed up. Anyway, Nick, I think you got another question here. Yeah. Okay. So this is the third question. How does investing through a partnership impact a tax profile? Now, you know, we, Dan and I talk all the time about the importance of partnerships, right? I mean, I don't own any real estate alone. I don't think Dan does either partnerships, uh, you know, again, the partnership that we have between the three of us, right? We have opposing, but very complementary sets of skills. So partnerships, we, we, we preach about them all the time, but how does that complicate? How does that impact things on the tax side of things, Patrick? Yeah, there's a lot to consider on this side, but really the way to think of it. So, you know, partnerships in terms of connecting together for, you know, various different business and commercial activities, it's a bit different than what I would consider a partnership from a legal perspective. So an actual limited liability partnership Mm -hmm. or something like that. So number one, it needs to be documented. You need to make sure you actually have an agreement of what the terms and conditions this are. This is the handshake that. agreement kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, exactly. That... Yeah. You need something on paper. Otherwise, you have nothing to go back to. And it's it really doesn't have legal substance. You know, and similar to a corporation, it is, you know, you are required if you do have an LP to keep separate books of the transactions for the partnership. And there's a a big reason for that is generally a partnership does not pay taxes and does not file a tax return. It's considered a pass through entity for income tax purposes. Instead, each partner files an income tax return to report their share of the partnership net income or loss. And it's based on that partnership agreement. So in the partnership agreement, you'd spell out who owns what, how much, you know, what's the impact, you know, beyond the legal side of things, which I'm not a lawyer, but definitely you want to make sure you, you know, have all that squared away. That dictates how that income is split at at year end and and how it's included. So another important consideration would be who is investing in that partnership, right? So if it's an individual versus a corporation for tax planning purposes, again, based on individual tax profile, it may be more beneficial to run this through a corporation, again, from a little bit of liability perspective, et cetera, which we touched upon in the last episode. There is some additional filing requirements with a partnership. So you got to file a T5013, which is a statement of partnership income that you pass on to each of the partners to include in their taxes. And if you are passing this through a corporation, CRA does consider the income as, so similar to the rental side, specified partnership income. And the small business deduction could be available on active business income generated by that partnership. So again, same rules, same concepts, but it would depend on the nature of that partnership, but that is available. However, 
if the small business deduction does apply, it would be prorated based on that partnership percentage. So again, similar concept to the related corpse. If the partnership is generated, generating active business income and qualifies for small business deductions, if it's flowing through a corp, then that would be shared. Also, since a partnership is considered to be a separate legal entity in the eyes of CRA, it may be required to register and collect GST and HST, as I mentioned earlier. So if you hit those two requirements, then that LP probably should be registering and filing as well. Is there any limit to the amount of partnerships someone can be in? No. Just gets more complicated? Yeah, I just, you know, you just have a lot more filings to do and a lot more books to keep. <laughs> but there's definitely, from my perspective, I'm not aware of any limits imposed on that. Would there be like better iterations for like, I mean, I guess GPLP structure simplicity perspective is often used in in the development space, whereas a corp structure is probably more common for long-term holds, I would say. Like, is there any more like clear application advantages to either of them that, that you could think of mentioning or... No, because at the end of the day, it's a flow through. So if it's still structured through the corp side of things... From a tax perspective, it still ends up being the same. It's just a question of how you're structuring and and more around that exit strategy, right? Because typically on the development side of things, you're in, you build, you sell, you're out. So it's not something you're creating right. for mm-hmm. long-term kind of the corporation because it, it has, survives forever until you sell the shares. The LP is actually in there for a purpose. And then once you're done, you're out, it's dissolved, it's done, Makes and then sense. you move on. So that's typically why they'll look at that structure. Fair enough. Excellent point. We've had a lot of listeners ask questions about the Section 85 election that you mentioned in the last episode. Can you expand on that one a little bit? Sure. It is a complex transaction. So I'll touch briefly just to explain the concept. The application does vary by individual profile. So just take this as general knowledge, but it generally allows an individual to transfer personal assets into a corporation or between corporations on a tax deferred basis. So to apply, the transfer must be a Canadian corporation. It must be considered what's called eligible property under the Income Tax Act. So depreciable and non-depreciable capital property, inventories, such as real property, except real property, sorry, uh, resources or real estate. So it's not just an actual real estate property. There could be things like you know vehicles, could be things like inventory. So oh, okay. it allows you to actually make that election to transfer on the tax deferred basis. Now, the election needs to be filed by both the individual and the corporation. So you're filing this on both sides and you're doing it concurrently or all parties. So this could be, again, if a partnership is transferring into a corporations and things like that, if there's multiple people involved, every single party needs to file that election. Now, the election is done on individual property basis. And when I say property, I don't mean real estate property. So whatever you're transferring, if let's say it's a widget, it's filed per, well, I don't want not per widget, but if it's a block of inventory, you transfer all the inventory. But if you've got three properties, so three real estate properties you're looking to transfer, it'd be three filings, one for each. And it requires the transfer of at least one share in the corporation. So you know, effectively what you're doing is you, you are, you're exchanging the property for shares in the corporation for a value. Now that consideration, which is the amount that you transfer the asset at cannot be lower than the adjusted cost base or the purchase price, but can be used in certain scenarios to trigger some capital gains for some tax planning scenarios. So at the end of the day, you can't use this to create tax losses on the personal side. It needs to be at minimum on a cost basis, but 
If you have some capital losses available to you, you could use this as a tax planning measure to generate a capital gain to utilize those so that they're not lost. So as I said, in short, you're taking the asset and you're exchanging it for shares in a corporation at a value. That's effectively what the Section 85 does. I feel like this is like as close as we've gotten to a 1031 exchange type type of thing in, in, in that exists in the States that we're all jealous of. Still that, not even kind close of it? though. Like, not even close. It's USA like, has real capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm being generous here. Okay. I like that. Yeah. We have gotten a couple of questions about this. Can we just walk through like a quick real life example as, as to what this would look like for someone with, let's say three physical properties, again, property being, not just real estate, but let's use just real estate as an example here, right? All right. So let's say I have a property. I'm going to say it's worth a million bucks. So I bought it for a million dollars. So my adjusted cost base is a million bucks. And I want to transfer this over to the corporation. So what I would do is I would set the consideration. So I don't have tax losses or anything like that to take. I would set the consideration at a million dollars. So Again, if you're kind of thinking through the sale transaction, so transferring legal ownership of that property from a tax perspective triggers a disposition. So me as an individual, I've now sold an asset at the same price I paid for it. So I didn't generate a capital gain. And the corporation acquired the property at the same price, a million dollars. And I've exchanged so that that corporation now owns the property at a million dollars. So when they sell it, they'll get the capital gain on that side. And I'm exchanging it for shares in the corporation worth a million bucks. So on both sides of the equation, the corporation has an asset that's worth a million dollars. And now I have an I still have an asset, but instead of the property, it's now shares in the corporation worth a million bucks. That's kind of the high level Coles notes of what that looks like. That's fantastic. I mean, we see so many people buy real estate in their personal names, right? I mean, this was the subject matter of the first episode, right? So you buy That's something right, in your yeah. personal name, you know, you now have a clear path. You've started a corp to run that real estate out of. You want to get that piece of real estate from your personal name into that corporation this is the cheapest and best way to do it because you're deferring tax on it. You're deferring capital gains. And then the corp ends up paying that if and when that property is actually ever sold. That's right. Okay. I get it. That's not bad. Yeah. No, nothing remotely close to a 1031 exchange. I'm quite impressed by your summary, actually, there, Nick. <laughs> wow. Thanks. Hey, maybe there's an accounting in my future. I was going to say, I'm, I'm hiring. So you're looking for a summer? Yeah. You're looking <laughs> yeah. for a summer student, I'm Patrick. Hiring. I need some summer students. So come on over. <laughs> I will never be doing that. But that's why I have you, man. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about this last one and let's make number five your last one, Patrick. Unfortunately, I think you're probably going to have to come back to do one more. I know we're really twisting your arm here, but I feel like this last one, we've. I know Dan's got some stuff to say about it, and I'm looking forward to hearing. Also, for those who so we convinced Patrick to buy a Blue Yeti mic, so he's stuck with us now. So, <laughs> so he will be back. I got to get some more of uh, those hats there, uh, Dan. Yeah. Okay, I'll send you some. Yeah, the, the dead <laughs> I'm sure there'll be a couple <laughs> bankrupt companies yeah, yeah, coming yeah, this yeah. year. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Dan, you're going to have to start making them yourself. We'll get them on the website, the merch website, for sure. For sure. Okay. So final question here, Patrick. What are some of the implications to be considered for the new anti-flipping tax, right? We have we have all types of investors across the country, a lot of buy and holds. We've already touched on STRs, which has been great, which I think we'll probably have to do more a more in-depth episode and maybe how that's we start doing things, right? Like if you're a buy and hold, this is the kind of tax stuff you need to be aware of. If you're an STR, this is what you need to be aware of. For those that 
have made a lot of money flipping and done it very successfully. And for those that are now probably not doing as much flipping because it's getting harder, not just based off the market, but based off of certain things like this new anti-flipping tax. Walk us through it. And what are some things that our listeners should consider if getting into a flip type project? Yeah, this is a big one. So it actually received, so I know the last time we spoke, it was kind of mentioned in the budget, but it actually received a royal assent on December 15th of 22. So it actually that sounds important. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is effective now legally on January 1st, 2023. There's been a lot of noise in the news lately, like CRA has already been investigating and reinforcing the real estate, uh, residential real estate rules around this. And it really focuses on the nature and the frequency of uh, the transaction and the use of the principal residence exemption. So uh, PRE. So if you remember from the last episode, the PRE permits a taxpayer to exclude the capital gain on the sale of a principal residence and the taxpayer elects whether they claim that uh, PRE. And the aim of the new rule is to effectively stop homeowners from abusing that rule to avoid paying taxes. So from CRA's perspective, you know, flipping is, is defined as purchasing real estate with the intention of reselling the property in a short period of time to realize profit. And under the new rules, any property owned for less than 365 consecutive days, and this is the important change, would be considered flipped and taxed as business mm. income. So, you know, there's some exclusions within the rule for qualifying life events, such as, you know, death or a breakdown of marriage, disability or injury, or, you know, what they call an eligible relocation that will allow you to exclude that. But it's also important to note that this also includes assignment sales, which are what I call shadow flipping. Ooh, I like that better than assignments. Shadow <laughs> flipping. We don't recommend sounds, those anyway. Sounds much yeah, more ominous yeah. than, than than assignments. Yeah. <laughs> I would caution though that even though, you know, when you're looking at this sale, even if the property is held for more than 365 days, you know, case law and you know relevant facts around the transaction would still need to be considered to determine the tax treatment. So even though you've owned it more than a year, CRA will look at the big picture, they'll look at your history, they'll look at the intention, right? So a, a bunch of factors behind why you purchase the property, et cetera, and make the determination at that point in time. So if you're if you're submitting something incorrectly, you know, you could be assessed for gross negligence penalty. So again, 50% of the additional taxes owing and additional interest charges. So when I was a kid growing up, there was this contractor that lived on my street and within, I swear, maybe three Old or four snitch. years- he had, <laughs> this has got to be 20 years ago. I don't even remember his name to be honest, but yeah, this guy must've lived on three or four houses, just like within, you know, the same two blocks. And he went in and the house wasn't that nice. And then a year later, the house would be for sale. And I was friends with his, with his children and, and they would be moving again, but they wouldn't move that far. You know, he'd move three or four houses down, whatever, buy another house, fix it up. And a year later, sell it. And, you know, as a young kid, I asked why that was happening. And it was, I was told, well, they live in the house for a year, so they don't have to pay capital gains. But now, am I understanding this correctly, that even if you live in the house for more than 365 days, or if you own it, you still are going to have to pay capital gains on that? Yeah, you could be triggered at that point in time. It's actually business income at that point in time. What's right? the risk exposure for... So like there are iterations of people doing this to build homes as an example. Mm -hmm. And it's a Terry on circumvention element number one, but it's also, I mean, like what we're saying here, capital gains circumvention. If you're building a house, living in it for a year, moving out, selling it, claiming primary residence, making a stupid amount of money probably over the... If you did that 10 times in the past 15 years, I mean... 
like how exposed is somebody like that right now, now that this, and how retroactive is this tax policy? Like, cause I know, you know, there's evidence that the CRA is definitely ramping up their collections department right now to try and, you know, get back a lot of those. I mean, we, there's a lot of money that they put out over the last couple of years. Yeah. Right. So that was a loan. That wasn't free money, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm just curious. Well, and who knows? It could be like, you know, a lot of people talk about how this is sort of modern, modern monetary theory concepts. I won't say that they're outright doing that because I wouldn't give them enough credit per se to organize it properly. But also, I don't think that it's that sinister. But the the final layer of modern monetary theory is, you know, you let the capital circulate for a couple of years and then you tax it back out of the economy. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, loosely, the framework looks like it's there. Like, it, you know, it's a it's not direct version of that. But I guess my actual question here is, are people who who built a bunch of houses or flipped a bunch of houses over the past couple of years, should they be sweating right now? There's a couple of things there. So number one, the rule is effective Jan 1, 2023 onwards. However, CRA does have the right to reassess a tax return and ask you to support why you claim the principal residence exemption. And you are seeing a little bit of that in the news where, you know, there's certain, you know, individuals that are claiming it more frequently than is expected and things like that. So they'll look at a couple of trigger points and, you know, ask you to support it. But at the end of the day, individual situations and case law will determine if it's an issue. I mean, if if you're constantly every year or every 18 months flipping a house, then, you know, there potentially could be some risk there. What I'd recommend is, you know, just discuss it with your accountant before signing on a dotted line. So, you know, again, don't wait till the end of the year and say, here's my, you know, purchase and sale agreement. I've did some transactions and claim it as a principal residence type thing. Have that conversation with your accountant throughout the year, just to make sure that, you know, you're dotting all your I's and crossing your T's to make sure that everything's been considered. You can still execute that strategy. You might just have to write some capital gains into your spreadsheet as just you know a line item, I guess. Yeah. That nature is important, right? Like you have to be living in it for the purposes of living in it. If it smells like you're buying this property to do something to generate profit in the long run and flip it in two, three years, and this is something you are continually doing, then there is some risk there that that could be reassessed and viewed as business income. Unless you turn that into a business and start treating it as such. Exactly. So probably good to find an accountant and get yourself a business license for that one. Let's stop it here, fellas. We've probably got another 30 minutes and just in the next few questions here, and I'm sure we'll have more. Patrick, any final remarks on this or anything else? Do you want to let people know where they can find you? I know that you now have Instagram. Yes. Yes. So oh, last congratulations. I was too active. Yes. Thank <laughs> you. So on the accounting side of things, you can find us at uh, ledgerly.ca. So L-E-D-G-E-R-L-Y.ca. And you can find me on social at Cossette, the number one, all one word. That's C-O-S-S-E-T-T-E. Yeah. Awesome. Dan, any final words you want to get us out of here? No, I like that ledgerly.ca though. It's like a very sexy, appy kind of name. I like... Oh, thanks. I actually have to go through quite a few iterations to get that approved. Are you going to launch in a tech startup next or what? Yeah, getting there. Get branding guy. Cool. I know I'm really happy with this conversation. As always, you bring a massive wealth of knowledge to the show. And I'm actually glad because when you said you had a bone to pick at the beginning of the episode, I was hoping it wasn't about something really stupid that I said in regards to accounting. And I was just glad to know that it was because the dinner jacket actually belongs to your small town rather than my small town so it belongs to every small town across the country boys it it unites us all it's true true. that's right (laughs) great to see you patrick thanks so much for listening everybody we'll talk to you soon thanks guys see you on the next one
The Canadian real estate investor is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center, license number 10317, and a partner in GNH Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial, and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.